Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love you to open it now to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. The chapter division here is very unhelpful. In the first four verses of this chapter, Paul is carrying on the conversation from chapter 1 about the change in his travel plans. You can see that for yourself in terms of the wording of verse 1. Most commentators will deal with all of chapter 1, verse 23, through to 2, 4 as a unit. But as a Bible reader, if you're using a Bible reading plan like the RMM, the Robert Murray McShane Bible reading plan, then it can be jarring to jump right back into this conversation after a 24-hour pause. To help you with that, let me just briefly remind you of what Paul has been saying. At the end of chapter 1, Paul had said, I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrain from coming again to Corinth. That's 2 Corinthians 1.23. So the reason Paul didn't come when they had expected him to come was that they were not in a position to enjoy an extended visit. They were dangerously out of alignment. And so if Paul had come, he would have had to come as a firm disciplinarian instead of as a gentle father and mentor. So he had attempted to deal with the discipline issue ahead of time with the letter and the emergency visit so that his extended visit, which he still had on the calendar, could be a time of mutual refreshment and joy. He carries on seamlessly with that train of thought here at the start of chapter 2. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. The Apostle Paul here is functioning very much like a wise and experienced parent. Most good parents will tell you that there's a ditch on either side of the road when it comes to discipline. Obviously, you have to discipline. If you don't discipline your children, they will fail to develop self-control and they will become a terror to you and everyone around you. But on the other hand, you don't want to discipline too much. You don't want to break the spirit of your child and you don't want to create a culture of constant conflict in the home. So we sympathize with the dilemma that Paul finds himself in here. These spiritual children of his are misbehaving. And so while he knows that he needs to deal with it, he would prefer not to crush their spirit. So he very wisely gives them a little bit of time in which he hopes that they will sort things out on their own. To be sure, he points them in the right direction with the severe letter. But he would rather not have to address this matter himself when next he visits. Good pastors and good parents understand the value of choosing your battles and biding your time. Verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. 
For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. The first thing we notice here is how gentle Paul is toward the offender. He doesn't name the specific sins. He doesn't rehearse his side of the story. He refers to the whole matter obliquely. He says, if anyone has caused pain, he refers to such a one. Paul understood that had he said, now, as for that blatant adulterer, or as for that ignorant rebel, then the individual would have been further shamed. Paul understood that People need to be able to outlive their sins and indiscretions in the church. Church members and leaders need to have very short and imperfect memories. Now, of course, for safety's sake, some things have to be recorded and retained. But in general, young people and young believers need to be able to grow up and move past their former immaturities. And so Paul now wants to make sure that the church isn't overreacting to his severe instructions. He is thankful that they have taken appropriate action against the individual who stood up against Paul during his emergency visit, but it appears now that the individual has repented, and so the entire matter should be set aside and forgotten. Now, as much as we admire and commend Paul's approach here in terms of his careful and oblique references— it does create certain difficulties for us as Bible readers. As David Garland notes in his commentary, the lack of particulars leave readers who are far removed from the situation in the dark. Closed quote. Yes, it certainly does. There's a great deal of speculation as to the identity of this individual because of those oblique references, because of those lack of particulars. Was it the man who was committing adultery with his father's wife back in 1 Corinthians 5? Is that who we're talking about? Or was it one of the false apostles that were attempting to undermine Paul? Or was it just some individual who opposed Paul's attempts to impose discipline on the church community? There will always be a few folks like that who think that Christians should just love everybody and cheer for everybody regardless of what they're doing or who they're hurting. Maybe someone like that resisted Paul's efforts to bring about correction and reform. We can't say for sure because there just isn't as much information as we might like. Now, I tend to think that it probably was the individual mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5. It seems entirely plausible to me to think that he had rejected the church's efforts to excommunicate him. And because he was a person of wealth and influence, the church abandoned their efforts to do so. Paul's emergency visit then may have been intended to buttress them in that matter. But when the church didn't follow through, and when this individual berated Paul for attempting to oust him, and the church did not declare on Paul's side, a breach was opened, and that occasioned the stark terms of the severe letter. The church was then motivated to act, and the discipline appears to have worked. The individual has repented. Presumably, that would mean that the relationship with his stepmother has ended and the offense to his father properly acknowledged. 
Presumably as well, the authority of the Apostle Paul has been publicly acknowledged by all parties. And thus, the repentance seems authentic. And so Paul's tact in not bringing up the sordid details seems both gentle and wise. He wants to make it as easy as possible for this individual to re-engage with the church community. So he does not see the need to heap further shame upon him. Now, as I said, that all seems very plausible to me, but because of the lack of specifics in this letter, the commentators are fairly evenly divided, with a majority of early commentators favoring the view that I've just outlined, and a majority of modern commentators favoring one of the other suggested options. And that's fine. It leaves us with a set of principles floating free, as it were, from any specific context, which may in the long run actually be more helpful when it comes to reapplication in our contemporary times. The bottom line is that Paul wants to see this individual reincorporated into the community. The devil would love for this individual to be isolated so that he would be easy prey. The devil would love for this wound to fester and further divide the church. We know his game, Paul says. So let's be quick to forgive and vigilant in pursuing restoration. There's so much that we can learn from the wisdom and graciousness of Paul's response here. John Calvin very helpfully says in his commentary on this passage, There is need of strictness in order that the wicked may not be rendered more daring by impunity, which is justly pronounced an allurement to vice. But on the other hand, as there is a danger of the person who is chastised becoming dispirited, moderation must be used as to this, so that the church shall be prepared to extend forgiveness as soon as she is fully satisfied as to his penitence, closed quote. In essence, this is just Luke 17, 3-4, applied to the life of the church. In that passage, Jesus says, If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him, closed quote. So Jesus says, take sin seriously. Yes, but take repentance seriously too. If a person in the church sins, deal with it. If he or she repents, forgive. It's easy to get this wrong either way. God help. Verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. 2 Corinthians is by far the most personal of the Apostle Paul's letters. At times, it's almost agonizingly personal. But in the wisdom of God, I think that's a helpful thing. If we didn't have 2 Corinthians in the New Testament, I imagine we might think of the Apostle Paul as a sort of theological and ecclesiological robot. He just, you know, traveled around the world saying brilliant things and planting healthy churches. But 2 Corinthians pulls back the curtain, so to speak. It shows us the reality and the reality was that Paul was emotionally and psychologically affected by the situation that was unfolding in Corinth. He's very open about that. He says that he went to Troas to preach the gospel. But even though the opportunity was there, he couldn't do it. He was distressed and anxious because he hadn't heard back from Titus. 
Titus delivered the severe letter, and Paul desperately wanted to know how that letter had been received. And until he knew, he was a mess. He couldn't preach. He couldn't evangelize. He couldn't focus. So when Titus didn't arrive at the time Paul expected him, his concern for Titus's safety and for the situation in Corinth became overwhelming, and he basically walked away from an open door. And Paul doesn't hide that. He is highlighting his own frailty and humanity. The stress of this entire situation knocked him out of the pulpit. He, he put everything on hold and crossed over into Macedonia, figuring that Titus had been forced to travel over land. And we eventually find out in chapter 7, verse 5 and following, that they did in fact meet up there. But Paul leaves the Corinthian readers of this letter in suspense about that for several chapters. He's making a point. He wants the Corinthians to understand the cost of conflict. See, conflict isn't cheap. It wears out church leaders, and it results in missed gospel opportunities. And that's important for Christians to understand. Listen, sometimes conflict is worth it. Sometimes conflict is required if you're going to be faithful. But a lot of times, it really isn't. Now, as I mentioned, in 2 Corinthians 7, 5-7, Paul finishes the story about the mystery of Titus's whereabouts. He says there, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more, close quote. So obviously Titus was able to locate Paul and he gave him the very encouraging report that the severe letter had done the trick and the church had made the decision to come back under Paul's authority and they had done what he had required them to do with respect to the primary offender. So that's how that part of this story ends. But in the intervening paragraphs between verse 13 here in chapter 2 and verse 5 in chapter 7, Paul uses that experience of emotional anguish as an introduction to his defense of suffering as the normative experience for an apostle. Paul understands his suffering, emotional, spiritual, and physical, as a badge of authentication as opposed to a disqualifying embarrassment as they perceived it. He suffers because he represents the crucified Christ. He suffers because he has been appointed to preach and illustrate the gospel. Verse 14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ." 
Now, the transition from verse 13 to verse 14 is abrupt, so abrupt that scholars have suggested that all of the material from 2.14 to 7.4 was originally a separate and distinct letter. But I think that is to miss the point, and it's to miss the literary and rhetorical flair that Paul is making use of here. He is creating, in essence, a sort of tension in the story. We wonder, what's what's happening with Titus? Where is he? What happened to him? And, and Paul says, yes, do you feel that? I was feeling that. But that is all a piece of the sort of suffering that I have to put up with as an apostle. And, and, and leaving that tension there gives him an opportunity to expand upon that. Paul's making an argument here. He's pushing back against those who have wrongly assumed that to be in Christ is to be strong, is to be powerful, is always to be, you know, settled and happy and joyful and prosperous in this world. But that's not the nature of New Covenant ministry, because that's not the shape of the New Testament message. The message of the New Testament is Christ crucified. So, Their rejection of Paul because of his humanity and weakness calls into question their grasp of the gospel in the first place. Mark Seifert draws that to our attention. He says, It is not finally Paul, but the gospel that is at stake. Indeed, the Corinthians themselves are being tested. The question is whether they will accept the weak and suffering apostle who out of love suffers on their behalf. Closed quote. So that's why Paul is foregrounding his suffering, his physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual suffering. Because that's what it means to follow Jesus. After all, Jesus said, in the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Closed quote. That's John 16, 33. You see, that's the gospel. Power in suffering, power in tribulation. So Paul is not walking away from that. He is doubling down. He says, that's what it is to follow Jesus. That's what it is to witness for Jesus. And to make that point, he makes use of imagery drawn from the Roman military triumph. After a great victory, a Roman general would march through the city leading a parade of prisoners and spoil. That's how Paul understands himself. I am a prisoner on display. I am a naked slave from a fallen world now held captive by the grace of God in Christ. I go where I am led and I look as best suits the purposes of my master. That's an engaging perspective and it is one that demands a response. When you look at Paul, you are forced to make a decision. Is this what life and salvation looks like or not? That's what he says in verse 16. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. So what do you see when you look at me? That's what Paul is asking. And it's not just their relationship that is on the line. It is their hold on the gospel. Paul Barnett is helpful here. He says, Their response to Paul confirms them either in death, those who are perishing, or life, those who are being saved, causing him to cry, who is equal to such a task, closed quote. Paul understands what is going on here. 
He is being held forth as an illustration of the gospel. So, if you are repulsed by what you see in me, he says, then what are you going to do with Christ on the cross? Because that's the gospel. Christ on the cross. Power in weakness. Life in death. Grace applied at the point of our greatest and deepest need. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the Into the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.